Good morning. So as a guest speaker, not only do you have to come up with something to say, you have to remember to get a lot of the details right. So I want to make sure I don't forget the detail of dismissing bridge kids. <laughs> bridge kids, you are dismissed. While they're going out, if you have a Bible and would like to turn to page 677, uh, we'll be looking at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together this morning. We are thankful for a chance to explore your word together. And we pray that we can apply what you show us to your lives. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll be looking at the beginning of Matthew 5, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How often have you heard the question, what's a person to do? Often it's a rhetorical a rhetorical expression of exasperation. Maybe you're exasperated with a child, maybe with a sibling, maybe with a boss or with a co-worker. I can't believe they did that. I can't believe that they were so ridiculous. What's a person to do? We like to vent our feelings when we get exasperated, but sometimes what we say may have a little bit of a deeper question beneath it. Sometimes we're simply venting, But sometimes what we say betrays a little bit more of what we're really thinking. Maybe we really don't know how to respond. Maybe we really don't know what to do next when faced with a challenge or frustrating situation. Maybe it's a situation that we faced over and over again and we really don't know what to do. What's a person to do? Well, it's also a bigger question about life. It's a question we face day to day. What's a person to do? And there are lots of Christian authors who've, tried, who've tackled that question in a variety of different books. Things like, How Should We Then Live? by Francis Schaeffer. Or, published a few years later by Chuck Colson, How, shall, how, how Now Shall We Live? Easy to confuse the two titles. If you go a bit farther back, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship has a lot of profound things about what we should do or how, how we should live. If you take just a quick look through a Christian bookstore or go to Amazon and troll, the spirituality, troll through the spirituality section, there's lots of books about what we should do or how we should live. And some of them focus on the big issues. They take big philosophical looks at life. 
Some of them are more a list of do's and don'ts. Here's a suggestion for this situation or for that situation. Here's what to do day to day when you're faced with challenges. Lots of things that can help us try to answer the question, what should we do? Well, I think a good, quite, a, another good place, maybe an even better place to look when we're trying to figure out what we should do is to look at Jesus' teaching. When we've got politicians on every side, politicians of both parties, not just simply sharing their ideas, but talking about how evil and despicable the other party is, is this a time for action or a time to wait on God? When we've got overwhelming health problems, is it a time to run desperately from one alternative to the next, looking for the next solution, or is it a time to pray and to trust? When we've committed to raising money for clean water or for a missions trip, and the funds just don't seem to be coming in, is this a time to pray or a time for action? A time to be working really hard to do one more thing, or a time to trust in God? If we look through the Bible, there's passages like Philippians 2.12 where Paul says we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But then in 1 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says that he's the one who planted, but his colleague Apollos is the one who watered, and God is the one who gives the growth. Are we supposed to work, or are we supposed to wait? Do we act, or do we wait? Are we responsible for seeing that God's work gets done, or is God? What's a disciple to do? There are many parts of Scripture that have something to say in answer to that question, but I think one helpful place to look is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And before we start looking closely at the passage, I want to look at a little bit of the background. As the events of Jesus' ministry are recorded in the beginning of Matthew, The Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' first major speech. Before that, in Matthew, first, obviously, he was born. That kind of had to happen. Um, Then he was baptized by John. Then he was tempted in the wilderness. And then Matthew says he began to preach. He actually started preaching using the exact same message that, that John the Baptist was. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. He also began to call followers, and he began to heal... And as you follow the first few chapters of Matthew, Jesus begins to have a bigger and bigger following. And then in Matthew 4.25, it says, Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and from the region across the Jordan followed him. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 5. Eventually, I hope. Great. Matthew 5, 1 to 12, the first two verses. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, these crowds from Galilee to the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the Jordan, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Okay, Jesus went and sat down. Boy, that's profound. Well, actually, while those two verses seem a little bit straightforward, they actually tell us some pretty important things about the setting. We know from what what happened before, Jesus had been followed by more and more crowds, and now it seems that specifically because of those crowds, he sat down to give some more formal teaching, a lecture, a sermon. Up until this point, he's been preaching, healing, he's been calling followers, but this is really the first formal teaching setting that Matthew describes. 
In verse 1, it talks about the crowds, and then it talks about his disciples who came to him. Now, we don't know if this was crowds of disciples, and now he's speaking to the same crowds, or if the disciples who are listening to him are a subset or a part of the crowds. Was Jesus preaching to large crowds, and it was only certain followers that went up the mountainside? We don't really know that. But what does seem clear is that the disciples who are listening to him are more than just the twelve. When I was in preschool age Sunday school, I recall having a number of different books that talked about Jesus and the twelve disciples. And at that time, I got the impression that the, tw- that the disciples referred to Jesus' twelve followers, who we also call the apostles. Um, I didn't really ever think about the difference between the disciples and the apostles, and it was probably okay because I was only four. But <laughs> I was only four. When you actually look at the words disciple and apostle and the way they're used in the New Testament, though, there is a difference. It seems clear that the word apostle refers specifically to the twelve, Jesus' followers who he sent out on, who he sent out on missionary work, who later were the ones that carried on his work after the crucifixion. But then there's also reference to, the, to people who are his disciples. And when you look at the way the word disciple was used in the, in the language at the time, it seems clear that a disciple is, refers to a student, and not just a student, but a dedicated student or a learner. One reference that I found says that the word disciple implies that the person not only accepts the views of the teacher, think, yeah, he's got some good things to say, but is also in practice an adherent. A disciple accepts what the teacher has to say and seeks to follow it. So, again, we don't know who all is in the crowds, but it seems clear that the disciples who followed Jesus up on the mountain were a group of people who were dedicated to learning what Jesus had to teach and dedicated to following what he had to say. They went to him for wisdom and for guidance. So, what does Jesus have to say to these disciples, these learners who want wisdom and guidance? Let's go on to verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, as you can tell already, one word we're going to see over and over again this morning is the word blessed. It's one of those religious words that we use a lot, and I think sometimes we use it without a clear understanding of what exactly it means. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, I was blessed to get this job, or you were such a blessing to me. And when we pray before meals, we ask God to bless our food. And then someone sneezes and we say, bless you. So if blessing can be everything from a life-changing event to something for a sneeze, I'm not sure we really know what we mean. And I think part of the ambiguity, part of the problem, it turns out, is that our English Bibles use the word blessing to translate, use the same English word, blessing, to translate two different concepts in the Bible. There are at least two different words in the original language. One word for blessing that's used in the original language in the Bible refers to bringing prosperity or causing someone to flourish. A blessing can be when someone is prospered, someone, uh, someone has, has things going well in their life. Um, the other word for prosper means to make happy or to be happy. And when Jesus' disciples are hearing him speak in this context... 
the word that's translated as blessing is the word for happy. So when Jesus' disciples heard him speak at this point, they're hearing him say, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Well, happy in mourning is a hard enough concept, but what does he mean? What in the world does he mean by happy are the poor in spirit? The word poor here is the word that you would think of as applied to a day laborer or a beggar, someone who has little or absolutely nothing. This is the person standing on the side of the road will work with a sign that says, we'll work for food. This is the person maybe sleeping in Phoenix Park on the park bench. The person has absolutely nothing. Okay, so that's poor. What about poor in spirit? Is this someone who's depressed and beaten down by life? Is this someone who's completely helpless and powerless? Or is this someone, as one dictionary put it, someone who is so destitute of a wealth of learning and a wealth of intellectual culture? Someone who's too simple to understand complex things? Maybe Jesus used this expression to sort of wrap all of these up in one. Happy are the helpless, the depressed, the simple. It makes me think of the passage that Pastor Jerry referred to last week when we were dedicating children, when Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not, him, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to, to such as these. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people who have nothing and maybe the people who are too simple to understand complex things. So why are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn, why should they be happy? Is this a challenge to sort of buck up and make the best of things because, you know, it's really not so bad? A lot of times when we're faced with someone who needs comfort, it's an easy, we very easily want to go to saying, well, you know, it could be worse. Don't worry, it's not so bad. Things could be worse. And there's going to be other times. You'll have another chance. Well, you'll have another crack at this in the future. And we say those words because, I think, because we mean well, and I think sometimes we say them to reassure ourselves, we don't want to face loss or sadness. We want, and we want to be there to provide comfort. But our experience tells us that sometimes things seem like they really won't get better. Sometimes it really can go from bad to worse. Our human experience teaches us that things really are like the way they're described in a saying that I've heard variously attributed to Paul Newman and John McCain and probably half a dozen other folks. It's always darkest before it turns absolutely pitch black. That's what our earthly human experience tells us. Jesus, in contrast... The Son of Man, God in flesh, Jesus is the one who can give us true reassurance. He tells his followers when they're faced with destitution, with no resources, with mourning, with loss, he tells us that we can take heart because he can promise comfort in the kingdom of God. When we try to to comfort and reassure people that we'll be there, things will get better, it, it, it can't get any worse, We're talking about what we can deliver. And ultimately, we really can't deliver. We can't give complete guarantees. But when Jesus says to his disciples, when Jesus says to us as disciples, 
that those who mourn in poverty of spirit are happy, it's because he can deliver on this promise. So disciples who look to Jesus for wisdom and guidance, whether it's the disciples in the New Testament times or us, we can be happy in our mourning in our times of complete and utter poverty because Jesus is the one that we can trust for comfort in the kingdom of God. Let's move on to the next few verses, starting with verse 5. Verses 5 through 9. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Take a pause, talking about thirst. So verses 5 through 9 shift the focus a bit. After preaching about happiness because of the promise of comfort, Jesus is now preaching about happiness found in obedience. And as we step back and look at this whole passage, I think there's a bit of a stair step going on. Um, I've broken it into three steps. You could probably break it up other ways. The first, the first few passages talk about comfort, sorry, happiness because of comfort. These next few verses talk about happiness in obedience or happiness in following Jesus' guidance. Blessed or happy are the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Well, in the first verse, blessed are the meek. When you first look at that, at first it, it seems like that should go with, with the, the earlier verses, the ones that are talking more about comfort. But the meekness that Jesus is talking about here isn't sort of the shrinking violet, the wallflower, the don't call on me type of meekness. A better translation of the word that's used here for meek is gentle. Jesus is saying, blessed or happy are the gentle, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. This makes me think of a book that we've had at home recently. Um, I forget the title, but it's a, it talks about three animals who are going through the woods, and they find a crown sitting on a stone, and its label is, for the mightiest. And the three animals are fighting over who is the mightiest, and they each give good reasons why they should take the crown, because they're the mightiest. And then a giant comes along and scoops them up while they're fighting, and says, well, I'm the mightiest, and he's about to throw them all over the cliff. And then a voice stops them all in their tracks, and the animals are really worried now, because who, whose voice can stop the giant in its tracks? It turns out to be a little old woman. Well, lo and behold, this little old woman is the giant's mother. So, they all decide the woman should have the crown because she was the mightiest. She could stop the giant who was going to throw the animals over the cliff. She could stop the, stop the giant in his tracks. But the woman prefers her little old bonnet. So the mightiest doesn't even want the crown. The little old woman refuses the crown and puts it back on the stone. And then as they all walk away, the book ends with another three animals coming and starting to debate who's the mightiest. So, we won't go there. But in that book, the mightiest, it turns out, turn, it, as it turned out, turned out to be the gentlest of all. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Moving on to the next verse. We don't often think about happy and hungry in the same thought unless we have confidence that we can satisfy that hunger. Now, now when I go for an extra long run on the weekend, sometimes especially if it's a weekend that I know that we're going to have a really good meal later in the day, like we're going out for brunch after church or something, 
Sometimes I kind of enjoy being hungry after the run. You kind of nourish the hunger because you know you've got a big meal coming to satisfy that hunger. But the only reason I'm happy then about being hungry is because I know that there's satisfaction, there's a meal coming. So being happy and being hungry may work sometimes, but really it's only when that hunger is by choice. Here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus isn't talking about being hungry because we kind of made it, we're hungry by choice and we know we've got a good meal coming. Jesus is saying, happy are the famished. And you're not usually famished unless you have absolutely no food and no idea where to get it. So, what is Jesus saying to his disciples? He says, he's saying it's precisely when you are the most famished for even the least bit of righteousness, when you're hurt because of another's wrong, when someone else's prosperity is coming entirely at your cost, when everyone around you seems either amoral or immoral, that's when you can be happy in your hungering for righteousness because you know that Jesus promises fulfillment. Why can we be happy when we are absolutely famished for any bit of righteousness? We can be happy because Jesus Jesus promises that he will satisfy that hunger. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Just like blessing, mercy is a word that we also don't usually use in our daily English. In fact, usually when I hear the word mercy, what usually comes to mind for me is the quaint expression, Lord, have mercy. And I'm not thinking in biblical, typically not thinking biblical images here. I'm thinking Dennis the Menace. He's just broken another vase. Or he's just accidentally placed a long-distance phone call to Hong Kong. And his mother says, Lord, have mercy. Or thinking of another comic strip. If you read Pickles... Maybe Earl has just committed another social faux pas. Or maybe Opal has just baked a perfect pie for the church social and Earl ate it. Lord, have mercy. Well, those expressions are quaint and they're funny, but they're hardly the stuff of biblical sermons or mountaintop proclamations. So if we think about the biblical use of the word merciful and mercy, it turns out merciful actually only appears one other time in the entire Bible. Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17. For this reason, the writer of Hebrews says, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That's the one other time merciful shows up in the Bible. Mercy shows up many times, and those other examples help shed light on what it means here. For example, in Romans 2.16, Paul writes about salvation. It does not, it, salvation, does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. A common biblical definition of mercy, then, is to help one afflicted or seeking aid. But I think if we look closer at the New Testament, it's clear that mercy isn't just about giving help, but it's about giving oneself as help. Mercy, or being merciful, is about self-sacrifice. It's about going out of the way. It's about sacrificial giving. 
So here, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is saying, happy are those who give of themselves, because God will give of himself to them. Happiness doesn't stop just with gentleness and with a passion for righteousness and the practice of mercy. Jesus also makes clear that peacemaking and purity of heart are essential for the disciples. Purity, sincerity, making peace, all of these bring one close to God. So in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encourages those who look to him for wisdom and guidance to trust in the coming kingdom of God. The beginning, Jesus is encouraging trust and giving comfort. Now Jesus has moved on to guidance. Jesus calls his disciples to gentleness, to a passion for righteousness, to self-sacrifice, to purity, and to peacemaking. He calls his disciples to live that way because happiness that comes from God, sorry, because of the happiness that comes from God to his disciples who live that way. Then we come to the final verses, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Some days it's easy to look around and feel that there's persecution at every turn. People object to the way we live, the way we share our faith. Some people don't just dislike our values, but they seem to, we think they seem set on overturning the way that our society lives. Sometimes it seems there are barriers to practicing our faith the way we want that just aren't fair. There may be many ways that we feel persecuted from time to time, but I think it's important to put the persecution that we think that we see in our society into context. There's an organization called Open Doors, and each year they publish a world watch list of the most difficult places to live as a Christian. And this last year, in publishing that list, the way they describe the countries that have the distinct honor of being at the top of that list is they say that in these places, persecution of Christians is more than just physical violence. It's a complex, multifaceted phenomenon that involves many aspects, such as various forms of cultural marginalization, government discrimination, hindrances on conversion, hindrances on participation in public affairs, and restrictions on church life. I'm not saying there aren't times that we have it hard in the United States, but I think when we look at descriptions like that, we realize how much worse persecution truly is in other parts of the world. And what does Jesus have to say to disciples who face persecution? Well, at first it seems like Jesus is saying the same thing in both verses here, perhaps repeating it for impact. He says it, and then he says it again, sort of like the old saying, if you're going to speak, you tell people what you say, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Well, I think if we look more carefully, it actually seems that Jesus is making a point and then emphasizing it even more. He makes a point, and then he adds an exclamation. First he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, First he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, blessed are happy. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
reading through this, I began to wonder, is this an intentional parallel with verse 1, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't know the answer to that question. It could be one to explore on a different day. But what we do know is that Jesus is saying that persecution for righteousness shows that our identity is not in this world's morals or this world's standards. Our identity is in the kingdom of heaven. So why should we feel happy? Why should we feel blessed if we're persecuted for righteousness? Because it shows that we are not of this world. We are the kingdom of heaven. So then what's the difference between verse 10 and verse 11? Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things of all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because in verse 12, rejoice and be glad, because great in your, is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says we are blessed or happy when people persecute us or slander us specifically because of Jesus, because that is how the Old Testament prophets were treated. So it's worth a pause here to remember who the Old Testament prophets were. It's easy with our popular conception of what prophecy is about and maybe if we've been influenced by movies or books or whatever, it's easy to think of a prophet simply as someone who tells the future. And it's true that some of the Old Testaments did, with God's guidance, predict the future. But the word that's translated as prophet in the Old Testament really means someone who speaks forth for God. So in short, what Jesus is saying here is that when we are insulted, when we're persecuted or we're slandered because of him, that is a sign that we are standing with the Old Testament prophets and speaking for God. So when we are persecuted or slandered, things people say evil against us because of Jesus, that's a sign that we are speaking forth for God in the same way that the Old Testament prophets did. That may not make our circumstances happy, but that should make us happy because of the way that we are identifying with Jesus and because of the way way that we are speaking for God just as the prophets did. So, back to the original question that we asked at the beginning. What's a disciple to do? I think in these first 12 verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us some answers. As disciples, what are we to do? I think, I think we can look at three points. If we are truly committed followers who trust Jesus for wisdom and for guidance, we can be happy in mourning and in times of complete and utter poverty because we can trust Jesus for comfort. If we're truly committed followers who trust Jesus for wisdom, we should follow his guidance and we should live in obedience with a life of gentleness, a passion for righteousness, for self-sacrifice, for purity, and for peacemaking, we should follow Jesus' guidance and live, and live in obedience that way because happiness comes to his disciples who live that way. And if we're truly committed followers who trust Jesus for wisdom and for guidance, we should rise to Jesus' challenge to live righteously and live in his name because that is how we speak for God. So if we are committed followers of Christ, he calls us to live relying on Jesus, on his comfort, following his guidance, and rising to his challenge. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us that the end result is not ours to worry about, 
It's not ours to fret, or control, fret about or control. In every verse, whether Jesus is talking about comfort for mourning, satisfying hunger for righteousness, or promising that we'll share in the kingdom of God, in each case, the outcome is in God's hands, not ours. Paul talks in Philippians about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he talks in Corinthians about how he watered Sorry, he planted the seed, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. And I think that, I think those two verses together are essentially saying the same thing. We can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should be happy trusting in Jesus' comfort, following his guidance, rising to his challenge, because the outcome is in God's hands. Being a faithful disciple can mean many things. In the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus makes it clear that faithful discipleship means trust, it means obedience and following Jesus' guidance, and it means rising to his challenge. And in all of these, it means trusting that God is the one who will see to the outcomes. Let's pray. Thank you again, Lord, for the chance to explore your word together this morning. We pray that we can be faithful disciples in trusting, in obedience, and in rising when you give us challenge, and most of all, faithful in trusting you for the outcomes of everything. In Jesus' name, amen.